0: I want to thank all of you that watch online uh, for joining us at the 1130 assembly here at the Hills, our North Richmond Hills campus, for the fourth and final lesson of a series I've titled, By Design, Discussing God's Intent for Our Sexuality, which I hope makes you wonder, well, what's next? And I'm glad you asked. So next week, Taylor Walling is going to bring an important lesson on why the Bible is allowed to shape our lives, why we sit under its authority And then in two weeks, I'm starting a new series I've titled Unlimited. Some of you will remember that last year I did a series on the first eight chapters of Acts. And I promised that we would continue that study. Unlimited is going to look at Acts chapter 9 through 15 as we examine a church leaving Jerusalem and becoming a worldwide movement. Now, I planned this series months ago and got it on the calendar. Not knowing at the time of all the things that would happen this past summer in our country that again made clear the fact that we have a long way to go in racial reconciliation. I think this is God's timing because Acts 9 through 15 is the story of a church wrestling with God's call to embrace multi-ethnicity. It was a church that just embraced one race, but by the time you get to chapter 15, it's a different kind of church. And so it's a timely word for us and a timely word for our community and even our nation. So pray about the series. I think you're going to be blessed. Now, when you read Acts, you see a lot of people get baptized. So we thought it would be great to have another baptism week during this series. So on October 8th and 9th, we're going to do it again. We had a baptism weekend last March and 80 people or 82 people over three campuses got baptized. So we're going to do it again. If you've been thinking about getting baptized or, you know, someone that's been thinking about it, invite them to come and study with us. It's going to be a powerful weekend. So you've got two neat things coming up to be praying about. And I want you to join me in doing that. Okay, so I've been doing this a long time. I've made a lot of blunders in ministry. If you were going to list all the mistakes and do overs, I wish I had, it'd be a long list. It'd be hard to make my top ten. But I think this one does. So I'm a young preacher. And I don't know why, but I felt like I was qualified to do a sermon on God's view of sex. And I started my sermon with a joke. I asked the church, now which of these three things do not belong in this group? Would it be a egg, a rug, or sex? I said, obviously the answer is sex. Sex. Because you can beat an egg, you can beat a rug, but you can't beat sex. Did I mention that I was single at the time that I told this joke? And that my fiancé, Jamie Lida of San Antonio, did not think my humor was very funny at all. And here I am many years later, and I'm still not sure that I'm competent to talk about the subject. But the subject needs to be talked about. And i got to say... I am grateful for all the prayers of the last four weeks. I have felt covered in prayer. And I'm also so thankful for all of the conversations I've had. I've got to tell you, I have had more hard conversations in the last few weeks than any similar spell in my 38 years as a preacher. I say hard. I didn't say mean or ugly, but hard. Because I've become more convinced than ever of a statement I made the very first week. That when we misuse God's design for sexuality, souls get wounded. And these last three weeks, I have heard so many stories and seen so many tears. Because souls have been wounded by the misuse of God's intent for sexuality. It's hard to talk about this and not deal with the fact that it's messy, right? God's design is perfect. And God's children are imperfect. And when the church tries to hold on to both, it just gets messy. Only one person has ever lived who held on to God's design and God's children perfectly. And his name was Jesus. And the reason why is it revealed in John chapter 1. It says the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace. He was full of truth. He never compromised one for the other. He was so Full of grace that sinners called him their friend. And he was so full of truth that he would let people walk away if they were not willing to walk his way. He wouldn't ignore sin and he wouldn't ignore sinners. He held on to both. He held on to God's call to holiness and he held on to unholy people. And that's why he ended up like this. Because the cross says God cares about grace. And God cares about truth. Maybe no story makes that more clear than the story that we call the woman caught in adultery. I would rename it. I would call it the story of the woman redeemed from her adultery. But this woman is caught outside God's design, committing adultery. Now, you've got to understand... It's not really about her. She's treated like an issue. And you never should treat a person like an issue. And the people that bring her to Jesus are just trying to chap Jesus. They don't say, how can we redeem this woman? How can we restore her to the image bearer that she was designed to be? No. Their question is, should we stone her? And you are familiar with Jesus' famous reply. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone and everyone left. But the story's not over. There's still a human being that needs to be restored. And so this is how it ends. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Now watch this. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Do you see it? Full of grace. Full of truth. Now, the things we've been talking about are controversial and they make us tense and they're hard conversations, aren't they? And they wouldn't be hard if we just held on to one and dropped the other. If we're just going to be all about grace and loving people and just forget what God said, then it's not a problem. If we're just going to hammer what God said and forget about loving people, we don't have a problem. But if we're going to try to hold on to truth and practice grace, well... It's going to get messy. Because grace is truthful. And in a culture where judging somebody is the absolute worst thing you can do, we've got to be honest with the text. You read the Gospels and you see a Jesus that called out sin and called people out of sin. So when John the Baptist says to Herod, hey, you can't be sleeping with your brother's wife, that's not God's design. Jesus didn't say, oh no, John, we don't get into the bedroom, that's not our business. Because Jesus never compromised truth. His primary message was not, do not judge. His primary message was, seek the kingdom. Jesus' gospel was an invitation for you and me to come completely under the reign of God and let God's good, gracious rule step into and step over every part of our lives, including our sexuality. And so it wasn't an affirmational inclusion that Jesus preached. It was a transformational inclusion. In other words, Jesus didn't say, hey, I'll just take you where you are, no big deal. No, Jesus said, I'll meet you where you are. And I'll call you into the kingdom of God, where you will start becoming who you were meant to be. But that call to change was offensive, and it still is. There will always be some who say, I'm going to be who I am, and I'm not going to let any truth speak into that. And we can't, for fear that we'll be called judgmental, so belittle. The truth of God that we belittle the reason Jesus went to a cross. Jesus went to a cross because people needed saving from their sins. And we can't make that cross so non confrontational that truth gets diluted. Now it's not truthful to say one sin's bigger than another. But it's also not truthful to say sin is no big deal to God. Jesus never saw the command to be holy as incompatible with the command to love people. He held on to grace and he held on to holiness. Look at how Paul puts it in Titus chapter 2. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to All people, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. You can't mess up so much that grace isn't offered to you. But that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And so, the church can't waffle here. We can't give an unclear word The church must say, leave your life of sin. But not first. Because the first thing Jesus said was, neither do I condemn you. Because truth is graceful. Now, no one left that day thinking Jesus didn't care about adultery. But everyone left that day knowing Jesus cared about that woman that was guilty of adultery. Because love is an orientation. And Jesus could call people out of sin because He was first willing to be called a friend of sinners. And He treated with dignity those He came to change before they changed. Because he didn't equate friendship with agreement. Sometimes we think, I can't be friendly to them because people might think I'm endorsing. Jesus didn't look that way. He could be friends with a tax collector without endorsing economic exploitation. He could let a prostitute crash his party and not feel like he was endorsing prostitution. Take a stand and keep your distance was not the way of Jesus. The Gospels don't give us stories of people that changed and then they came to Jesus. The Gospels are full of stories of people who came to Jesus and then they began to change. And that's going to require a really, really high opinion of the Holy Spirit. I grew up in a church that never mentioned the Holy Spirit It was a fairly legalistic environment and our message was fix yourself, work harder, try harder, repent some, clean your act up, and then come to church. It was all based on how much you could control your flesh. To live the way of Jesus is to really believe that if people start following Jesus, the Holy Spirit will start to change them. And it means... Returning to its rightful place, the words of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. And the rightful place is top two, because that's where Jesus put it. Love God. Love people. Top two. And you know what? It gets messy. Let's not pretend. It just gets messy. We're trying to hold on to truth. We're trying to hold on to grace. And it gets messy. But every now and then you get a story of someone who did it like Jesus. One of those stories involves a man named Dan Cathy and Shane Windemeyer. Shane is on the left, Dan Cathy on the right. You might recognize his name. He's the chairman of C- uh, CEO of Chick-fil-A. And a couple of years ago, it got a lot of mass media attention when he came out in favor of traditional marriage. And many people attacked Chick-fil-A and his views, including Shane Windermeyer. Shane Windermeyer is a gay man. He's a LGBT activist and he organized boycotts of Chick-fil-A. And then his phone rang and it was Dan Cathy saying, could we meet and talk? He was suspicious, but they did meet. They met a number of times and Dan Cathy invited him to come sit in his suite at the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl last year. Shane went and he wrote this article in the Huffington Post. He says, throughout the conversation at the Chick-fil-A bowl game, as a personal guest of Dan Cathy, he expressed a sincere interest in my life, wanting to get to know me on a personal level. He wanted to know about where I grew up, my faith, my family. In return, I learned about his wife and kids. I gained an appreciation for his devout belief in Jesus Christ. And his commitment to being a follower of Jesus more than a Christian. Dan expressed regret and genuine sadness when he heard of people being treated unkindly in the name of Chick-fil-A. But he offered no apologies for his genuine beliefs about marriage. Now what was unique about this article is that Shane wrote in the article, So I'm coming out a second time as a friend of Dan Caffey. And he took some flack from his community for doing that. But he said, you know what, Dan Cathy is a really good man. We don't agree. But he treats me with honor. He treats me with dignity. And I'm his friend. And that's what it starts to look like when we hold on to grace and we hold on to truth. Is this easy? No, it's not. But it's worth pursuing. And it might look something like this. I'm going to give you some suggestions this morning as we wrap up. Here's the first. Let's agree that we should treat all people with dignity and respect. And the fact that most people live outside of God's design for sexuality doesn't give me permission to live outside of God's desire that I, all honor, I honor all humans as image bearers of God. That's a long sentence, so let me say it this way. You can live outside of God's design, but as a follower of Jesus, I cannot live outside of God's desire that I respect all people. And for some of us, the place to start might be with an apology. You need to repent. If, as a follower of Jesus, you have ever participated in name-calling... In caricaturing, in bullying, in joking or laughing at anyone because of their gender or their orientation. To be blunt, I am saying you need to repent of any language or any behavior that has specifically demeaned women or someone who experiences same-sex attraction. No human being should be devalued because of their gender. Or because of their orientation. Often experiencing feelings they didn't ask for in the first place. Every human being is an object of the love of God. And they shouldn't have to start doing or stop doing anything to be an object Of my love because people are not issues and even if I disagree with you as a follower of Jesus I have no right to denabor you now let me let you in on a secret on the day of judgment you're not going to stand before me and I'm not going to stand before you we're going to stand before God And on that day, I've made my decision. I would rather my life be known that I was criticized for who I loved instead of I was applauded for who I hated. I think as followers of Jesus, this is non-negotiable. We treat all people with respect and with dignity. Here's my second suggestion that we truly honor those living a single and celibate life. And the failure of many churches and many Christians to do this reflects, I think, a sad accommodation to our culture's worship of the idol of sex. Single and celibate Christians are not broken. They're not inadequate. They're not incomplete. They do not need to be fixed. I said this in our second message and got more response to it than any message I have preached in years. And I want to say it again. One is a whole number. Maybe the most controversial thing I've said in this entire series, but it's my conviction. The Bible never says sexual activity is a human entitlement. You can live a completely healthy, flourishing life and never have an active sex life. I remind you again, the Christian faith is built on the identity of a man that we say is the most complete man who ever lived. And he lived his entire life celibately. Now, I have been clear that I think the Bible is clear that God's gift of sex belongs only in the parameter Of a heterosexual marriage. And if you are not in a marriage like that. Then God's call to you. Is to honor him. And steward your sexuality. By living a celibate life. And when we have people in our church. Who are doing this. They do not need to be pitied. They need to be honored. And esteemed for the radical faith it takes as a single and celibate Christian to pursue the way of Jesus. And we need to recover this. Here's my third suggestion. Let's genuinely support fellow believers who struggle to steward their sexuality according to God's design. And that's all of us. Every one of us. Struggles with disordered sexual desires. None of us have perfectly stewarded our sexuality. I've heard so many stories. Stories of affairs. Stories of divorces. Stories of sex outside of marriage and sex before marriage. Stories of deep wounds. Stories of people who experience same-sex attraction. And I want to take a moment and talk about that especially for her. Because it seems often in the church that we've grown to the point that you can be honest about a lot of struggles. But if you experience same-sex attraction, we would prefer that you just keep that to yourself and stay away. But isn't it true that God's grace to you in your own struggle, whatever it was was often mediated to you through someone else's honesty about their struggle. In other words, God helped you deal with your struggle by hearing the story of someone else being honest about their struggle. That we do this thing called following Jesus better when we do it together. So, one of my favorite stories from the recent Summer Olympics in Rio... It was a women's 5K a preliminary heat. and a woman named Kelly Hamlin from New Zealand stumbled. And in falling, she tripped Abby DeGonstino from the United States. Abby could have just gotten up quickly and tried to catch up and qualify for the next heat. But instead, she stopped to help Kelly get up and make sure she was okay. They started running again. And then Abby fell. Not realizing she had a torn ACL. And rather than going on, Kelly stopped to help Abby up. And they finished the race together. That's the only way you can finish the race of following Jesus. With someone else. You see, we were all built with this need for love. All of us. And in the Bible, the primary way your need for love gets met is not in marriage. It's in the church. In fact, the greatest chapter on love in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 13, we read it a lot at weddings. It wasn't written to talk about marriage. It was written to talk about life and doing church together when it's hard. You see, it's hard to embrace celibacy in the life and the culture we live in. And nobody's going to do it if it means we're calling you to refuse love instead of receive love. The cross is a reality for every believer. And it can only be born in community. And if you're a single person, and especially if you experience same-sex attraction, you can't carry it alone. And so... I read last week from Sam Albery, who's a minister of the an Anglican Church in England. He experiences same-sex attraction. He writes: "Over the last couple of years, I have felt increasingly concerned that when it comes to our gay friends and family members, many of us, Bible-believing Christians are losing confidence in the gospel. We're not always convinced it really is good news for gay people. We're not always sure we can really expect them to live by what the Bible says. It's simply not possible to argue for gay relationships from the Bible. God's word is, in fact, clear. The Bible consistently prohibits any sexual activity outside of marriage. Now, as someone who experiences homosexual feelings, this is not always an easy word to hear. There have been times of acute temptation and longing. But I've learned that what we give up for Jesus does not compare to what he gives back. And for me. These include a wonderful depth of friendship God has given me with many brothers and sisters. The opportunities of singleness. The privilege of a wide range of ministry. And the community of a wonderful church family. Do you hear what he's saying? I can deal with my struggle. I can bear my temptation. I can carry my cross. Because I'm not doing it alone. I'm surrounded by family. And we have in our church many people who experience same-sex attraction. And if they haven't told you, it might be because they're afraid that if you knew, you would push them away. And here's what I know. As a church, we will do better at making growing followers of Jesus when we create a culture Where it's safe for everyone to share their struggle. Because you can't grow a disciple in the dark. I hope we can be that church. I hope we can be clear to anyone that wants to follow Jesus. You are welcome here. Remember love is an orientation. And love doesn't see grace and truth as incompatible. Love doesn't think grace and truth are either or. It thinks they are both and. And so, let's be clear, that we must recover and affirm the call to sexual holiness. And sadly, the modern church has so modeled the prevailing cultural value regarding sexuality... That we've lost credibility when we critique it. An example. So I'm aware of a Christian uh, dating website. Helping Christian people meet online. And you fill out a profile and one of the questions you're asked is, Are you willing to sleep with this person you want to meet before you are married? And the overwhelming majority of 60-something percent say, yes. We are losing as a church the right to speak a much-needed word into our culture about their worship of sex. Because so many Christians are bowing down to the exact same idol. I know this makes us uncomfortable. Somebody's thinking, why do we have to talk about this? I mean, after all, the church should be a place of tolerance, not judgment. The church should be a place of tolerance and a place of love. But let me be clear, love and tolerance aren't completely equal. God loves everybody. But that does not mean God will tolerate everything. In fact, God is intolerant of sloppy tolerance In his church. Hear the words of Jesus to a church in Revelation chapter 2. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality. You see, the sexual ethics of his disciples really matters to Jesus. Let me make that more personal. If you are a follower of Jesus, how you steward your sexuality is a big deal to Jesus. There are eight vice lists in the New Testament. A list of behaviors that are not compatible with kingdom values. In every single one of those lists, sexual immorality It's mentioned. You see, God's not embarrassed by his design. God doesn't apologize for his standards. God is not up in heaven saying, oh, I wish I had a do-over. I would not have made it like I made it. God honors and is honored by his design. So hear the word of the Lord. First Thessalonians four. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. As we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure. But to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being. But God. The very God who gives you. His Holy Spirit. You notice Paul said, I've warned you about this. Why? Because I love you. That's why you give warnings. I read about an evangelist who went to Australia and he was on Botany Beach with a friend. He took off his shirt, was about to go into the water. And his friend said, don't you see that sign? Warning, sharks. He said, oh, that does not mean anything. And he said, mate, over 200 Australians have lost their lives here to sharks. Now you've got to decide. Is that sign there and is that warning trying to keep you from having fun? Or is it trying to save your life? And so we've got to ask ourselves when the Bible warns us what kind of God is God? Is He a good Father? And does He want what is the very best for us? And so I warn you because I love you and because I want to see all of us presented before the groom as a pure and holy bride. Take seriously. The stewarding of your sexuality. Honor God with your body. The gospel simply cannot be a big deal in any heart where holiness is not a big deal. But the gospel does more than warn. And so I close with this. Let us offer the hope of the gospel to those who have not honored God's design this series has surfaced a lot of feelings and emotions I've had so many conversations conversations where feelings of guilt and shame have come out where people have said I haven't honored God's design I've been unfaithful I've cheated. I've broken vows. I've blown up marriages, mine and others. I've hurt people. I've wounded people in ways that they will never completely recover from. There's no hope for me. When that kind of guilt comes up, you will start to hear a voice. Jesus named it. He called it Satan. And that voice will try to leverage that shame to push you away from God. But you need to listen to another voice. The voice that says, neither do I condemn you. A few years ago, Russell Crowe was in a movie. He played a a farmer from Australia named Joshua Connor, whose three sons left to go fight in World War I. And they were all presumably killed in a battle far away. His wife, so overcome with grief, took her own life. And at her grave, he promised he would find the bodies of her sons and bring them home to be buried beside her. So he travels three months to get to the site of the battle where he thinks his sons were lost. And there's a British commander in charge of burying honorably the British fallen. Who was very frustrated by this foreigner complicating his assignment. He bought passage on a ship to send him home. But there's one officer who's sympathetic Who wonders why this commander won't help this grieving dad. The commander replies, I don't have time to help every dad who won't stay put. And the sympathetic officer says, yes. But only one dad came looking. So can I tell you the difference between the Christian faith and every other religion? Because every religion admits people are messed up. We're broken and we're fallen. But only one God came looking. Oh, we're more broken than we realize. But we're so much more loved than we imagine. Jesus came for messy people. And so... As we close this series on stewarding our sexuality, let me finish with the most important verse in the Bible on the subject. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Him, And so Jesus went to a cross for you and for me. And the cross was by design. And because He is still full of grace and truth, we can be full of hope. The good news is not good. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray that these words will bear fruit in every heart. They're not easy words. And they're words that fly in the face of the voice of the culture, but we want to hear the voice of Jesus. And like Jesus, we want to be more full of grace. More committed to truth. And so we ask you, God, to give us the courage... To listen to the right voice. And especially right now, I pray for the heart that is hurting. That they can hear. There is no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus. So, God, call us, your messy children, back to you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.